All right. Well, good morning, everyone. How are you doing? Oh, great. I'm glad. Um, so my name is Lane, and I'm the pastor here. That is a fairly new development. If we haven't met, I would love to meet you. I'm going to invite our uh, ushers to come forward at this time. We're going to begin uh, expressing our worship through the giving of our finances. This is something that we do joyfully as a church, um, as an expression of worship to our God. If this is a place that you call home, this is for us. But if you are new, if you are visiting, please feel no obligation to give at this time. And while the buckets are being passed, I'm going to give a couple of announcements. First is that group signups are live right now. So... I love relationships. I love building community with people. There's only so far that we can go and do that on a Sunday morning and talking in between services. And so we have groups. These are designed to get you connected with people that you can build meaningful relationships with and go deeper with. They start in October and they go for six weeks. And you can sign up for a group that is specific to the kind of people that you're looking to hang out with. If you're looking for a group that's young adults or college age, if you want a group with couples or a group that's co-ed, a group that's women, a group that's men, a group that's dedicated to prayer, if you want to uh, do underwater basket weaving together, whatever you want to do, I'm sure that there is a way for you to find a group. So please, you can get signed up on the church app, or you can go into our lobby and sign up there for groups so that we can go deeper together. Also, if you are in any way interested in learning how or starting to serve in our productions or worship ministries in any way, there's going to be an interest lunch and audition happening October oh, uh, September 18th and October 2nd from 2 to 4 p.m. So if you want to learn how to run the media, if you want to learn how to mix and run the soundboard, if you play guitar, if you play drums, if you sing, whatever it is, if you want to serve in any way in our worship ministries, this is a time for you to come and get to know Ashley, our worship pastor, hang out with the team, and uh, uh, get started in, in serving. Last thing is connect cards. If you're new here, it's your first time, we want to connect with you, hence the name connect card. We want to follow up and get to know you a little bit. So fill out that card. It's in the seat back in front of you, um, and that just gives us a way for us to follow up with you. All right, that's all the announcements. Can I pray for us as we jump into today's message? I asked the last service to do this, do this but um, just take a deep breath. Let's acknowledge together that the Holy Spirit is with us right now. The presence of God, real, active, moving, speaking, breathing life. When we gather together to worship, to sing, to hear from the word, there is the person of God who wants to do more than just take us through the motions. God wants to transform your heart, transform our world, to bring healing to broken places. So God, we acknowledge that you are here with us right now. And we ask that as we learn from your scriptures, that we would be transformed, that we would be healed and redeemed, that we'd be made to look more like you. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. So today is September 11th. And today we remember that there were a series of terrorist acts in 2001 on this day that claimed the lives of 3,000 people. And it forever changed our world. Most of us, if we were alive, we remember where we were and how we felt when we saw that second plane hit the World Trade Centers in New York. I was at a friend's house. We were going to go to Disneyland that day. I was playing hooky from school. And I remember when that second plane hit, before that second plane hit, excuse me, 
we were all watching the news and asking ourselves, how could uh, such a wild accident possibly have occurred? Right? It didn't occur to us that something so horrific could be done intentionally. And it was shocking. It rocked and it changed many Americans' sense of security and safety. But the truth is, violence and evil, this is hardly new in our world. In fact, most of human history has been marked and defined by human violence, right? Governments and nations, since the earliest documentation of history, have been plagued by war and by chaos. Ever since Cain murdered his brother Abel in Genesis, violence against one another has been something that has plagued the human heart. The ancient Hebrews, they looked at the ocean, the sea, and they saw a metaphor for the chaos and the confusion that swirled in our world. Governments and powers, evil running rampant in the hearts of man, wanting to kill one another, motivated by greed and fear. Which is why when we look at the book of Revelation, and when John glimpses the promise of the new heavens and the new earth, he sees that there is no longer any sea. Because the chaos of this world's governments, the chaos of the violence that we live in, would be surrendered to the peace of God in this new creation. There's a reason why Jesus, in his famous Sermon on the Mount, he elevates peacemakers as those who are children of God. Today we're continuing in our series in James. And in today's passage, this is the closing thoughts of chapter 3. And James elevates the peacemaker. How does one make peace? The longer I live in this world, the more I observe that human beings have a propensity towards chaos. And in my experience, chaos tends to breed anxiety. And anxiety renders us ineffectual. It paralyzes us, or even worse, it weaponizes us against the kingdom. It creates agents of chaos in us. Now, I, lo I love this country, warts and all. I do. I am so grateful that I grew up here and that my immigrant grandparents chose to embark on a, on a brave adventure to provide a future of, of flourishing for their children and for me. But even the best governments, apart from the rule and reign of Jesus, are prone to chaos, if each in its own unique ways, right? A big value of the American people is one of freedom, one of liberty, to pursue life, liberty, and happiness in the ways that I feel are best. And as much as I appreciate this way of life, and I really do, I also know that Jesus has another plan for me. That Jesus doesn't tell me that I can do whatever I want and call it freedom. Jesus tells me that if I truly want to be free, that I need to make myself a servant. We've been using this word doulos in the Greek. A servant of him. And it's only when I lose my life for his sake that I actually find it. Because when human beings are left to their own devices, left to discern good from evil for ourselves, we come up with all sorts of ways to make ourselves really miserable, right? This is why freedom, however necessary for a thriving democracy, and it is, it's still not as good as what is promised for us in the kingdom of heaven, right? The existential philosopher, Christian philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard said, anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. There have even been studies to show this, right? The more choices that a person has, if there are too many choices, it actually suggests that those choices make me less happy. Which is why the scriptures teach us that the pathway to peace 
is not a wisdom of our own making, but rather a wisdom found in God. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Peacemakers, those who make peace, are those who are defined not by their own intelligence, but those who are defined by whom they are in relationship with. They are children of God. And we are given the gift of being able to abide in the one who holds wisdom and removed of the burden of having to define that wisdom for ourselves, right? So our world is prone to chaos, and as children of God, we're agents of peace, those rooted in the wisdom of God, a wisdom born out of union with him. At the beginning of this series, we talked about why wisdom in our age is so important. I'm going to throw a picture up here. We live in an age of information and also an age of misinformation. That was my name. Pretty cool, huh? Um, Also an, an age of misinformation, right? I can be thrown into the middle of all this, and especially on the internet, I see all ways that I can get sucked into ideological extremism, confirmation bias, misinformation, echo chambers telling me what I want to hear. And all of this information doesn't actually make me feel powerful. It actually makes me feel confused, anxious, and it makes me contradict my own thoughts and beliefs. Right? In an age of information and misinformation, knowledge alone can actually lead to very dangerous things. All these things are threatening my peace. And we're learning in James that knowledge is only as good as the wisdom which navigates it, right? So this other picture, this is what the scriptures and wisdom in Jesus offers us. Peace, clarity, resilience in a sea of chaos. We can jump into a sea of endless knowledge, but without wisdom to navigate it, it only leads to our peril. But biblical wisdom empowers us to action, to move in and through the world to bring peace to the chaos, right? As we've been working our way through James, we've learned that wisdom gives us the ability to endure, and it also empowers us to act, which is why the series name is Wisdom Lived Out. So with that premise set, let's jump into today's text, James chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. So today's teaching, James is really good at challenging the reader and making us uncomfortable. And I want you to know that as I prepared this message, I felt that. (laughs) I felt challenged and uncomfortable. And if you feel that way, it's not my fault. Blame Jesus. Okay. (laughs) In this lesson, at the end of chapter 3, there are two kinds of wisdom that's laid out. One that comes from the unspiritual or the demonic, intense, and another that comes from heaven. The former is characterized by envy and selfish ambition, and the latter by things like purity, humility, obedience, mercy, good fruit, impartiality, and sincerity. And the former the one that's ruled by selfish ambition and envy, this feels very indicative 
of where we are in our dominant culture today, doesn't it? If we look at how information is leveraged today, how knowledge is used, we see people using wisdom to dominate one another, right? People spin their own side of statistics in order to reveal why the opposing side is wrong, not just to represent their truth, but to demonize the other, right? If we look to politics or religion in our culture, it's easy to see the chaos swirling about, brought about by people's fear and anxiety and insecurity. And because information is so plentiful today and easily weaponized, it's like we took a bunch of toddlers, threw them in a room with a bunch of swords and told them to fight over the snacks, right? That's how the internet feels to me sometimes. But James teaches us that those who possess wisdom do two things. One, they walk in humility and gentleness. And two, they leverage their wisdom to enact God's goodness in the world. So let's talk about this idea of humility and gentleness. I'm going to show a picture. Uh, it's, we're going to get a little philosophical, so, so hang with me here. But let's say that these two circles, that they are humans. More specifically, they are human thoughts. They're, they're minds, let's say. And that the black around them is the unknown. Let's pretend that this unknown stretches far into eternity, right? So the known is everything that we know, things that we have come to learn. And the unknown is everything else, right? Everything from in this room, like things that I don't understand that are happening right now. Like somehow an invisible signal is sending from my wireless pack to the board and coming out of the speakers. People have explained to me how this works. I still don't really get it, right? So that's unknown to me. And then everything that the James Webb Telescope is broadcasting to us to show us the vast mysteries of the universe, right? That's the unknown. It's big. The person on the left, they're probably younger. Maybe not, but probably younger. They've had less time to accumulate knowledge. What they know is smaller. The person on the right, they've been around a little bit longer. They've accumulated more things that they know. However, the person on the right also has more points of contact with what is unknown. So although the person on the right knows more things, they're also more aware of how much they don't know. Does this make sense? The first time I saw this graph, I was a little confused. It took me a few times to get it. Now, an ambitious and self-centered person will look inward, and they will take pride in how much they know, how much they've learned. But a humble peacemaker will look outward and acknowledge that they have learned so much about how much they don't know, right? There's a phrase that I've come to respect so much more as I've gotten older, especially from people who are wiser and smarter than me. Usually, a person will gain more respect from me when they appropriately use this phrase. I don't know. I don't know. Because this usually implies that the individual is a curious person. And genuinely, sorry, generally, curious people tend to be better learners. And I don't know about you, but there's not a lot that bugs me more about a leader that is challenged or straight up proven wrong or guilty and they're unable to admit it. When they're unable to show humility, right? But when a teacher, a pastor, a parent, a leader, someone is able to admit that they lack knowledge, that they made a mistake, when they exhibit that kind of humility, it earns more respect for that person, right? The ability to say, I was wrong or I'm sorry. These are huge in building relationship. 
The idea of humility, this Greek word also translated as gentleness or meekness, this would have been almost offensive to the Greco-Roman understanding of power at the time. Um, To show gentleness, to show meekness, would be to display weakness, and you don't want to do that. But we know that Jesus is someone who is defined by his gentle spirit and humility. Because Jesus was not only strong, he was equal to God in his power. And what did this king of creation do? He humbled himself to serve. He did things like wash feet and eat food with us and ultimately lay down his life in sacrifice for us. Likewise today, I think there's a lot of arrogance that plagues our perceptions of power, that if someone is right, they are all right, or if they're wrong, they're all wrong. But Jesus, he flips power dynamics of this world on its head, and he says, the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. And this is tough, right? Having this kind of humility will cause you suffering. It will, and persecution. It'll mean that you're misunderstood, maybe misrepresented, Sometimes you'll get crucified. But if it does, walk gently and confidently. For you share holy ground with your Savior, who knows what it is to be misunderstood, betrayed, and abandoned. Some of the words that characterize this humility, one is pure. It's pure. This word means that it's untouched by corruption and sin because it's from heaven. This is a gift that we get wisdom from someone who is pure. It's peace-loving. Now, peace, shalom in the Hebrew world was not something that just meant that I felt peace at the moment. Because I experience feelings of peace, right? When I'm like sitting on the beach and I happen to have a moment where I'm not plagued by like my burdens and my, my expectations and my responsibilities. I have a moment where I feel peace. But true peace in the biblical understanding is not just a feeling. It is everything set right. God and people reconciled. People and people reconciled. There's a heart of reconciliation. It says that it's considerate and gentle. This word considerate pops up five times in the New Testament, and it's usually used to contrast the aggressive ways of the world. Jesus commands us to love our enemies. We don't fight fire with fire. We don't have anything to prove. We walk humbly with gentleness in our hearts. It says that it is submissive, which means that it is willing to obey. We do not like that word submissive. I'm not submissive. I'm free. I'm American. You know, like we don't like to submit to things. But that is the way of Jesus. Even in the way of marriage, Paul urges us in Ephesians, submit yourselves to one another out of love. It's hard to do. It's faith. It's, the, it's not the absence of doubt, but the audacity of trust, right? Talks about it being mercy. So full of mercy. Mercy, when we think about our common understanding of mercy, I think about this game that I used to play when I was in elementary school where you kind of link fingers with somebody and then you try to turn the other person's arms up and lift them up. And if they go, ah, mercy, then you win. Anybody play that game? Just my demented childhood? Okay. Uh, But yeah, that was a game called mercy. We tend to think about mercy as withholding rightful punishment. Like I got power to break your fingers right now. And that's, that's mercy. But the biblical idea of mercy was very different. Mercy was associated with the, with the idea of oil. When mercy is, is used in the scriptures, it's always poured out. There's an ancient prayer that has been around since the first days of the church. It's, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. It doesn't just mean God withhold your punishment. It means God pour out your mercy upon your people. Oil was used as a medicinal agent for things like burns and dry skin. It was a soothing agent. 
Think about Psalm 23. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. There's so much oil being poured on his head that it's dripping down into his cup and overflowing. That God is, is abundant in his mercy for us. It's how you anoint people. It's also the fuel for light. Our mercy in the world is not just withholding of punishment. Our mercy in the world is an active agent of healing and hope. That's what mercy is supposed to be. It also says that, that humility is characterized by good fruit, that if I'm truly wise, I should be able to see fruit in my life. And James has kind of hit this pretty hard so far, right? Faith without works is dead. And we got really, really good as an American church at defining our opinions. We got really, really good at that. In the mid-century, in the fundamentalist movements, all these churches were releasing these really lengthy doctrinal statements of every little niche point of theology to make sure that you knew where you stood, to make sure that you knew that you were with the right people, right? There's a Reddit joke that I found that I'm now going to share with you. Um, <laughs> I was walking across a bridge one day, and I saw a man standing on the edge about to jump. I ran over and said, stop, don't do it. Why shouldn't I, he asked. Well, there's so much to live for. Like what? Are you religious? He said, yes. I said, me too. Are you a Christian or Buddhist? Christian. Me too. Are you a Catholic or Protestant? Protestant. Me too. Are you Episcopalian or Baptist? Baptist. Wow, me too. Are you a Baptist Church of God or a Baptist Church of the Lord? Baptist Church of God. Me too. Are you original Baptist Church of God or are you reformed Baptist Church of God? Reformed Baptist Church of God. Me too. Are you Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1879, or Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1915? He said, Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation 1915. I said, die, heretic scum, and I pushed him off. <laughs> I mean, it's funny, but it's like, <laughs> we get really caught up with having our opinions and finding people that have our exact opinions. Have you noticed that's very hard to do? <laughs> do you know there are roughly 45,000 denominations of Christianity in the world today? Can you wrap your head around that? 45,000 different organizations and institutions that claim Jesus as Lord. That's a lot. I love our movement. I love Foursquare. I'm an ordained Foursquare pastor. But we do not hold the monopoly on the kingdom of heaven. We are people who are doing the best we can to serve the kingdom of God the way that we know how. And we are a part of a much larger story. And our opinions matter a lot less than we think they do. I'm going to get in trouble for that one. Okay. <laughs> the same can be true of our interaction with faith and politics, right? Are we defined by our beliefs alone? Or do how those beliefs impact our lives, do they, do they heal the world around us, right? Are, are, we, are we simply boxes on a ballot, or are we a people in a place? Is wisdom lived out more than simply holding correct beliefs? Is it maybe about enacting the good of those beliefs in the world? Like, I, I can, do I pride myself on having the best research stances and opinions? Or am I living out the convictions that I claim to hold so dearly? Do we simply want control, or do we want to serve? Because power that comes from knowledge can be used to control and manipulate others, right? Our political conversations jump to this. But wisdom that comes from God is about enacting the good of God in our world. Here's the challenging part for me. 
Sometimes I look at my life and the strong convictions that I hold, and I ask myself what I'm doing differently than my atheist neighbors, than my agnostic friends. When I look at my spending habits, my social engagement, my lifestyle choices, am I truly living out the values that I claim to hold dear? Or does it simply just feel good to say that I believe something or support something so that I gain credibility with the right people and avoid criticism of the right people? Because I'll be honest, it's easier to do that. Do I take pride in my knowledge and my beliefs? Because the scriptures seem to be teaching us that wisdom doesn't have pride. It walks in humility, and it lives out what it believes. In Jeremiah 9, it says, Don't let the wise boast in their wisdom or the powerful boast in their power. But those who wish to boast should boast in this alone, that they truly know me. Understand that I am the Lord. So my confidence, confidence? My confidence should stem from the truth that I am in loving union with the giver of wisdom, not that I've generated wisdom myself. And at the giver of wisdom, God, he humbled himself in loving service of humanity. He modeled that so that I could do it too. Maybe I'm really good at debating and throwing around statistics and quoting studies and philosophizing, but what am I actually doing to heal the brokenness that I am so upset about? See, I can say that I want to protect the lives of unborn babies all I want, but what am I doing to actually serve women in desperation and to resource people in impoverished situations? I can say that I love immigrants, but what am I actually doing to encourage the, if the flourishing of immigrants in my community? How am I being a good neighbor to the Samaritans of my city? I may say that I stand for sexual morality, but am I standing up for those who are being harassed in my workplace? I may say that God loves the poor, but am I able to look at someone begging on the corner and acknowledge their humanity? I may believe that I'm supposed to love my enemies, but am I actually going out of my way to serve the people that make me angry? See, we all have this problem. We all have really strong convictions in theory, but wisdom that comes from God doesn't just state the truth. It empowers us to embody the truth. If one of those things I said made you mad, that's okay. One of the other things I said made someone else mad. I think we've gotten ourselves into a way of thinking that we can legislate our way into the kingdom of heaven. That if we can control the government, we can enact the kingdom. But when Jesus walked the earth, did he look at the governments and the kings and the powers and say, that's how I'll spread my kingdom? No, when he gave his inaugural address, he said, blessed are the poor. He looked at the marginalized the oppressed. And he said, on you, I will build my kingdom. Very early on, Jesus made it clear that God does not rely on earthly power to bring about the kingdom of heaven. He builds his church in humble and faithful people. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. James also says that this gentleness is, is characterized, or this wisdom is characterized by impartiality and sincerity. Another phrase is translated without a trace of impartiality, non-divisive. Wow. Is anyone able to truly make that claim that they are truly impartial and sincere? Because here's the thing. Truth will always be divisive. Truth will always be offensive to someone. However, 
When truth is spoken in love, the intent is reconciliation and restoration. That's the difference. Paul writes in, to the Corinthians that our message is one of reconciliation. Whereas facts spoken in a debate are intended to leave someone the loser and me the winner. The end goal is not reconciliation and healing, but rather me being right. Do we see the difference? I had a mentor once who used to say, you can either be right or you can have a relationship. When we look at our relationships, our marriages, our friendships, there comes a time where our opinions, they will clash and we have a choice. Do we value unity or do I value being right? Wisdom, truth, love, these are not just ideas for us to absorb. They are, in fact, a person. All wisdom, all truth, all love is found in the person of Jesus. The only way to enact wisdom, truth, and love is to abide in Jesus, to make myself a children, a child of God, because apart from him, we are incapable of doing it ourselves. But in Jesus, I'm commanded to love everyone, including my enemies. And in that, I'm able to enact the wildest gestures of unity and reconciliation. Now, this wisdom teaches us to be peacemakers. Know this, there is a difference between a peacemaker and a peacekeeper. Like I said, truth can be offensive, but whenever truth is spoken in love, it's for the desire of reconciliation, right? Think about Martin Luther King. He was a peacemaker. He was not, however, a peacekeeper. He upset the established norms because he wanted to advocate for the unjust behavior that was happening in our society. But he did so with the desire that we would be reconciled to one another. Amazing humility found in Martin Luther King Jr. So wisdom that comes from the world, it's not only useless to God, it actually starts to oppose him. We think about that passage when Peter uh, rebukes Jesus, who says that I'm, I'm going to get arrested and crucified. And Peter says, no, Lord, not you. We're not going to let that happen. And then Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. When I was a kid and I read that, I was like, geez, dude, he's just like standing up for his buddy. Like, why do you got to call him the devil, right? Well, this word Satan in the Aramaic is actually not about being the devil himself. The word Satan means one who opposes and one who accuses. So in that moment, Peter, a close disciple of Jesus and follower of Jesus, stepped into the way of Jesus and opposed his will. He stepped into the role of the Satan. It was Peter. It was Peter. So if Peter, the one who understood Jesus probably more than a lot of us do, the one on whom Jesus decided to build his church— can stand opposed to the will of God, is it not possible that we can do the same? That those of us who are close disciples of Jesus, who go to church every week, who worship together, who pray and read the Bible together, that sometimes if we're leaning on our own wisdom, we can actually get in the way of what Jesus is trying to do in the world. Again, this is a challenging one, but it's challenging me too. This is why we have to understand that wisdom is a person, the person of Jesus. And peacemakers who want to be children of God, they are associated with this relationship and they draw their wisdom from a place that is pure, that is untouched by our corruption from God himself. Peacemakers who sow in peace will reap a harvest 
of righteousness. With this, we come to communion. This is something that we do every week here. And it's something that we do with reverence. Know that this sacred thing, this sacrament, is intended for those who call Jesus Lord. If you do not call Jesus Lord, I would ask you simply to hold these elements in your hand and to receive love in this way. But don't take it. This is for those who call Jesus Lord. We are invited to do this with reverence, to take it seriously. Because when we take communion, this is a statement that we are receiving for ourselves the humility embodied in Jesus through his sacrifice. And the sacrifice should change our lives. So when we do it, we just don't check a box. We do it knowing that following Jesus is transformative. It changes things. We've been talking about humility of wisdom all day. This is the embodiment of humility, the personification of humility. Jesus, though equal with God in his power and his authority, humbled himself. Although he was misrepresented, accused of things he didn't do, betrayed by his friends, he was able to walk humbly in healing power, to even utter words like, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. This is the kind of love and sacrifice that Jesus did so that we could be with him. And it's the kind of love and sacrifice that he invites us into so that we can invite others into that same love. So with that, let's reflect on these elements and pray together. Jesus, we thank you for this sacrificial love that you displayed for us. That you humbled yourself. Even though you held truth, that you were right about everything, you allowed yourself to be killed so that you could suffer death and defeat it. And then usher us into that new humanity where death, sin, and tears are no more. We thank you we thank you that you did what you did and that you are who you are. We ask that as we receive communion today, that we would find ourselves learning to be the kind of people that you would have us be, peacemakers who are children of God. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it and gave thanks and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take it together. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood in the new covenant shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Why don't we stand together and we're going to close in one last song.